Good morning. I am very glad to be here. I've been looking forward to this for uh, a couple of years now and very excited to be here, to be back with some very uh, familiar faces, good friends, people that I would consider family as long as we've known each other. And there's a lot of people here that I haven't met yet, and I hope that we'll get to spend some time together and, uh, and grow and encourage one another this week. So I want to get us started by talking about uh, sort of some introductory material for what we're going to be talking about this week. Uh, I've sort of titled this The Tipping Point, and if you've read the Malcolm Gladwell book by that title, it's not that. This is more the idea of us being on the edge of a cliff and noticing the forces that are pushing and pulling at us. There are spiritual forces that are in existence today. We're fighting a spiritual battle and spiritual warfare, and we are being pulled one way or the other. God is calling to us to come to him while Satan is trying to grapple at us with the sins that slow us down and entangle us and trying to get us off that edge, trying to tip us that way. So I want to talk about some things that I think are relevant and pertinent to what we're dealing with today. Today we're going to be focusing on uh, the, the topic of postmodernism. And if you don't remember what that word is by the end of today, that's fine. You don't, there's not going to be a test. But uh, you'll understand what that concept is, even if you've never heard that word. You'll say, oh yeah, I didn't know that's what that was called. But we'll see that that's a very real danger and something that is, uh, that's happening a lot today, a way of thinking that's dangerous to our spiritual well-being. For the rest of the week, we'll look at some churches in the New Testament, see some issues that they were facing in the first century, see some spiritually authorized Holy Spirit instructions for the correction that needed to be made or the encouragement that needed to be given, and hopefully make the same applications to us. If, if churches in the first century had problems, churches today have problems, we know that's nothing new, and we need to take advice from them and consider what the word of the Lord says to us today. So let's jump right in with our lesson this morning. Uh, and as you see, um, a very clever thing that I've done here is marked out the scriptural words and put in the more current terms that people would use. My truth will set me free. You've heard the phrase, the truth will set you free, because Jesus said that in the book of John. And that is exactly the case. When you know the truth, and you can know the truth, and you will know the truth, that truth is freeing. It brings freedom. On the other hand, we have the phrase today that would like to twist that today and say, my truth will set me free. We've got my truth and your truth instead of the truth. And that's really the basics of this idea of postmodernism. So over the course of history, and this is not going to be a good history lesson because I'm not good at history, but we know there have been different time frames that are characterized by the way people were thinking during that time period. You go back to the 17th century, and it was the age of reason. And so they were trying to think logically about all of the problems that they faced and the things that they observed. But they were moving away from theology and faith-based arguments. And then you move to the 18th century, to the age of enlightenment, where they realized how foolish they had been the past hundred years, and now they've really got it, and they're feeling enlightened, like they're starting to understand how the world works. We move into philosophy and reason and logic, and then in the 19th and 20th century, modernism came about, which, again, uh, took down the things that had been done before and said, well, they all had it wrong. And it's the if we were to... to give a name to the current frame of thinking, I might call it the age of postmodernism, which isn't a really great definition unless you know what modernism is. Uh, but as we were saying, it's not really important that we remember that term or go open a history book. What I want us to get at today, 
especially in this first lesson, is that while it's, it's difficult to identify specific statements or ideas as postmodern, the gist of it is, as we mentioned, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Can you see how that is important for us to understand as Christians, as Bible believers? Because if there's no such thing as absolute bedrock truth, well, that sort of puts us in a pickle because, well, we consider the Bible to be absolute bedrock truth. That is the objective standard. That's just what we go from. And if that's not objective, if it's subjective and you can take it or leave it or think whatever you want to think in this world, well, we can see why we might develop some problems about coming to an agreement on what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. The way people come about to their truths is they find it for themselves they search it out for themselves. They think about things for themselves. And it's a very individual thing. My truth and your truth. The way I think about things and the way that you think about things. And it's okay for us to just disagree and to all have differences of opinion. But the outcome of this is that my truth can be true and your truth can be true. And we can both be right even though our thoughts might be opposite to one another. In the 1943 book by C.S. Lewis called The Abolition of Man, he makes some prophetic type statements. They're not really prophecy, obviously, but he could see the way things were going uh, towards the future. And it's almost like the reading one of these dystopian future books that kids like to read today. But the premise is that everything is going to be based on relativism, things that are just relative. There's no absolute truth. And he says that we'll slide into a state of moral decay and lack of virtue. When you look at the world around you, do you see a lack of virtue? Do you see moral decay? Yes, obviously. Everywhere you look, you see, if you turn on the news, if you, if you read a book, if you go on Facebook, if you go to work or go to school, you see this condition of moral decay, and there's just no virtue. And so here we are. And so what I want us to do in our, in our morning lesson is explore the way this thought process is impacting uh, the church, impacting the family, and impacting our young people. Those are our three lessons for today. Sort of a, a, a real quick discussion on what postmodernism is, uh, what, how it's affecting the family, and how it affects the young people today. So I hope you'll make your plans to be here, especially you uh, young guys and girls in the back. I don't know if that's age-appropriate language, but I want you to come back, especially tonight, because of these are the things that you're facing. And I know you are, if you're going to school or if you're in the workplace. Uh, hopefully the lesson tonight really will be something that can be useful to you. Okay, so let's open up our Bibles and get to the good stuff and really see that this is not a new problem. So far I've presented it as though this is just something, it's, you know, I watched the news this morning and there's this thing called postmodernism and wow, you know, sound the alarms, we've got to be concerned about this, but this is not a, a new thing. Remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah 5 verse 20, woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Does this sound like something that could be taken out of Isaiah and applied to today's society? Absolutely. Absolutely. We live in a world where people say, no, that's, that thing that you say is good, that's actually evil. And we want to promote the things that, that a youth say are evil. But you know what? If you were really enlightened, if you really thought about it, you would see that they're good and they're fine and that's okay. Not only is it happening in Isaiah's day, but go back with me to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. This is soon after uh, the, the split of the kingdom after the reign of Solomon. So within a few short years, we go from Saul, who was not a very good king, 
David who, was, who, who put the nation of Israel into the, the pinnacle of their success and in wealth and in freedom from attack from their enemies. And then in Solomon, because, of he, was, because he was reaping the benefits of what his father had done, even though he had great wisdom, he did not use that wisdom. And then his children come along and there's problems. So once the, once the, uh, the kingdom divides, we see Jeroboam who is building basically his new religion. Look in verse 25. 1 Kings 12, 25. Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill city of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out and built there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. That sounds well and good. But the way that he's going about this is not well and good. Verse 27. If the people go to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two gold calves. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. Now we know it's not just the golden calves that he built. And this change in worship, there were many other things. Consider his priesthood that he uh, basically chose on a whim, the people who were to be priests, not following the Levitical priesthood. But this new religion that he was coming up with, it seems as though he had good intentions. Part of it was he didn't want to be killed because he thought that's what would happen if they went back to Jerusalem. But the other part says... I think that we're right here and let's, let's go about it however we can to prove that we're right. It doesn't matter if we're going against the truth that has been provided for us in the law. And so let's take a look at the basics of postmodern, postmodern thinking. It's not new. But what we see is that feel, feelings are always going to trump. They're going to outweigh whatever is true or whatever is factual. The feelings, how you feel about a particular thing, is always going to be the most important aspect of what you believe. Moving on, there's no such thing as absolute truth, like we've, like we've talked about. And that means that it's dependent on me and it's dependent on you. Jeroboam, who's to say that what he did was wrong? Well, the writer tells us this thing became a sin. But uh, if we didn't have that, who's to say really that what he did was the wrong thing? Well, Look at the law. No, no, we're not going to look at the law because I don't think it reads that way. That's not what that means. I don't feel like that's going to apply now that the kingdom is divided. We can see how it's person dependent. And truth is something that is made. It's something that I develop within me instead of discovering it based on the evidence that is there. When you look at people who reject the evidence of Scripture, The answer isn't to just throw up our hands and say, well, then you'll never be saved. You'll never believe anything. The answer is to go to something that they accept as good evidence. If people don't believe miracles exist, then the Gospels might not be the best place to start with them. Maybe we start somewhere else. But uh, what we're seeing here is that more and more when presented with facts and evidence, uh, people say, no, don't confuse me with the facts of the matter. I just want to think about it however I want to think about it. Now, I want us to, to have some a word of warning here. Before we say, well, I know for a fact that I'm, I'm not postmodern. I'm not a postmodern thinker. I'm not saying that we all are by any stretch, but we might fall into some of these tendencies and not really be aware of it. We need to know this is not a set of doctrines. You're not going to go to the Barnes & Noble and open up, go to the section of, of thinking and find a book that says, here is the set of rules to be a postmodern thinker. Can you see the irony in that?
a set of rules that tells you that rules don't matter? Well, it's not a set of doctrines. It's a, a, a way of thinking. I looked it up. There are no books on postmodernism that I could find, but there was one sarcastic article on how to be a postmodern thinker. But it's not, it's not a doctrine. What it is, is it's a mood. It's how you feel about things. It's just a way that sort of characterizes how you think. And it's, it's characterized by distrusting reason, by saying, well, you know, I'm going to be skeptical about what you say. I'm going to go find the truth for myself. And we get to the fact that it's just a way of looking at ideas. Instead of saying, here are the facts. What do these facts teach us and lead us to the truth? We have here is what I think about this. The facts are here, but I want to determine what I think about it. What do you think about it? Because, you know, that's really what matters at the end of the day. What do you think about it? What do I think about it? So what are the consequences? If we see what happened back in Isaiah's day where he says people are going to arise that say that good things are bad and bad things are good. And in the days of Jeroboam and the divided kingdom, he says, here's what I'm going to do because I think this is better than what the law has laid out for us. And it became a sin to them. We need to understand that we could fall into this and understand there's consequences to this way of thinking. Some of them are obvious. You've been listening. You guys are you know, picking up on this stuff, and it's not very complicated. But you can see some of the consequences of it. The first thing is that morality is questioned, and things that are ethical are questioned. This is exactly what Isaiah said in Isaiah 5, verse 20. Who's to say what's good? Who's to say what's bad? I know that for a long time, the the people will say in the United States have said this is sort of roughly a standard of morality that everybody sort of basically accepts, but no more. We want to challenge those old ways of thinking. They don't apply today. We need something that's a more modern way of thinking about it. And then if we're questioning morality, we're questioning what's good and what's bad or right and wrong. It's then going to influence the way that we read our Bibles. No longer will we be looking at it and saying, well, okay, here's what the word of God says. These are the changes that it's called for me to make. I'm going to make those changes because that's right. That's good. That's true. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what it says are the things I should avoid. I'm going to avoid those because they're bad. This is true. It changes the way we look at it. And I know you've seen this. It's... uh, no longer do we say, what, do you, what did Paul mean when he said this? What is this text teaching us? Instead, we have questions that says, what does this text mean to you? What does this text mean to you? What does this scripture mean to you personally? Now, we can make personal applications to our lives for sure. But at the end of the day, the truth is the truth. And it's the same no matter what it means to you personally. No matter what, the, what you think about it, the original meaning is there. The original intent of that is there. And that's what we have to go on. So let's move on and talk about some problems with the thought process of postmodernism. I know that not everything we talk about this morning is going to be directly out of Scripture. We've considered some principles that we're basing our lesson on. This is going to help us as we go talk to people that might not believe what the Bible says. But how do we talk to them? Well, for one thing, there's a conflict here. It's impossible to believe in in this postmodern way of thinking because it cannot be maintained. It's not a logical way of thinking. If I say there is no absolute truth, what kind of statement have I just made? I've made a statement of absolute truth. Where do we go from there? What what gives, you know, what's going to have to give in order for us to to solve that intellectual riddle that we've created? 
Well, if it can't be logically maintained, we move on. Another problem with it is that we could potentially say that, uh, that anything is right or anything is wrong and it wouldn't matter. But on the other hand, we can't say that something is right or something is wrong, including the way that I think about it. If I, as a postmodern thinker, I'm not, but if I was a postmodern thinker and I said to you, there are no absolute truths, and that's what I think about it, you could not then speak back to me and say, well, I don't think you're right about that, because I'd just say, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter how illogical my stance is. It doesn't matter that uh, what I say and what I think flies in the face of all the evidence that's been presented about the existence of the world, about the preservation of the, the word of God, about the way I should live, the things that are good for humanity. There's another problem. If truth, if there's postmodernism, truth is unavoidable. That's something that the Bible teaches time and time again. Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. How many truths? Obviously just one truth. And what the word of God says, it's the truth. It's unavoidable though. Think about this. If nothing can be proven as true, what does that do to our existence? If nothing can be proven as being true, it just makes life sort of meaningless, doesn't it? What's the point? Why do anything at all if I can't prove to you that what I'm doing is a good thing? If I can't look at evidence and come to a conclusion, we would have to throw science out the window too. Because if I look at evidence and I say, this is what this means, somebody might come in and they say, well, no, you can't, you know, I know that's what the evidence points to, but no, we can't believe that. Of course, nobody would do that. That would be a conflict of interest in this new way of thinking. A problem with postmodernism is that tolerance is abused. Tolerance is abused. It is impossible to tolerate everything, isn't it? It's impossible to accept every truth that anybody would bring to our attention, even in the religious realm. It's impossible to believe things that contradict with one another. And so we can't tolerate anything, everything, and that's important because there are contradicting ideas. There are things that people think that, that go against other things. Look at world religions. There are people that believe that the Bible is inspired of God, even if they aren't uh, strict adherence to it. But then there are religions that say, no, the Bible is, is just a historical book. It's a novel. It's fiction. Who are we to believe? Well, tolerance is, we might say, well, we have to be tolerant about people that have different ideas from us. I do think that we should be patient with people and that we should not force personal opinions on other people. But when it comes to the truth, there's not a whole lot of room for tolerance. There's not a whole lot of room for letting someone and, and thinking that it's okay to believe these ideas that go against each other. Really what we need to look at is the evidence. And we talked about it. If someone doesn't believe in miracles, then convincing them of the resurrection of Jesus, going to the gospels, that's not the place to start. We might go to the existence of a creator. We might look at the, the physical, natural world around us. It declares the glory of God. It talks about his power. We can look, as Romans 1 says, we can look at the world around us and, and see the power of God, which is clearly evident. And the evidence has to be allowed to speak. The interesting thing about evidence is that when it's presented, picture a court of law, when the evidence is presented, that evidence, the only voice it has is, is what it is. There's no opinion that that evidence has. 
It can't be persuasive to say, well, here's what, here's what I'm presenting, but let me tell you how you ought to interpret me. It says, this is the evidence we need to allow it to speak for what it is. When we, when we go to the word of God, what's right or what's wrong, the evidence has to be allowed to speak for itself, which means we have to be honest. Other people have to be honest. We've got to convince other people and ask them if we're going to engage in a discussion, whether it's philosophical or religious or spiritual or anything like that, we've got to be honest and say, when we come across evidence, we will analyze that evidence. And if the evidence proves that something is true, well, that's what evidence is supposed to do or prove that something's not true. We've got to accept that. And so we see some problems. So what does the Bible say about truth? Does the Bible say that truth is relative does the Bible say that truth is whatever you want it to be, that it's a very personal thing, that you can believe one thing, I can believe another thing, and, and we'll just agree to disagree? Obviously not. The Bible points us to truth. It points us to evidence, which leads to facts, and it leads to faith. So that's what the Bible says. Notice in John chapter 14, in verse 6, Jesus says here, I am the way, singular, the truth, singular, and the life, singular. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, how do we read that verse? Is that what Jesus would ask the Pharisees? How do you read that verse? It seems to me, as we love the Bible class answer, it's a pretty self-explanatory. It is. When Jesus says, if you want to get to the Father, the way to get to the Father is through me. Because I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life. If you're searching for truth, where is it? It's in Jesus. If you're looking for the way to the Father, where is it? It's in Jesus. If you're looking for life, abundant life here and eternal life to come, where do you find it? You find it in Jesus. And he is the the way to the Father. As we mentioned, John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He doesn't say you'll know that there's truth out there, but your opinion is really what matters on it and your opinion will set you free. That, That doesn't make sense, does it? Because if we all have different opinions on what color the carpet should be, is that bringing freedom to our discussion? No. We've all got to consider each, one, each other's opinions. And some people might say, well, I know definitely that it needs to be forest green. I have the facts to back that up. And some others may say it needs to be maroon because that's what color the carpets were when I was a child growing up in the church I went to as a kid. And we have different opinions that just contradict. No, that's not what Jesus says when it comes to important things, not carpet color. But important things like our spiritual destiny, there is the truth, and that truth is freeing. Truth brings freedom. Truth is not oppressive. Truth brings freedom. And people like to think that truth is oppressive because it causes them and it puts on them the burden of responsibility to answer to the truth, to make changes uh, according to that truth. What about Psalm 111, verses 7 and 8? The writer says, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. The psalmist writing here about the words of God, he says, when he presents principles of truth to us, his precepts, the way by which we ought to walk, they are trustworthy. You can believe them because they are true. They're established. They are bedrock, foundational. And they last forever and ever. That tells me that truth will not change. Truth cannot change where this verse is a lie. And if truth is relative, then the Bible is meaningless. 
What about Psalm 117? In the New King James, it says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. What that tells us is that truth is eternal. The truth of what God has revealed to us through his word. This is not just a handbook on how to successfully navigate this life. It holds within it eternal truths. Truths that existed before uh, there was an earth for us to inhabit. Truths that, were, that existed before the foundation of the world. It endures forever. That also means that in this short lifespan that this world is enjoying, that, that we enjoy, that truth is not going to change any time along the way, no matter what anybody says about it. Remember what Jesus said. He said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I used to think uh, growing up, because I was told this, that evolution was, was the boogeyman of our day. It's the worst thing that you're going to face. When you go to college, be aware, because people are going to tell you that evolution is there, that we came from nothing, we crawled out of a pond somewhere as a single-celled organism, and et cetera, et cetera, on down the line, and here we are talking about it today. And so I was raised to think that that's the most important thing that I've got to develop an argument or bring evidence against. It is important because that's, the evolution is not true. The, the macro evolution of us changing what we are, coming from something completely different to be here today where we can think and have a rational discussion about what is right or wrong or true or false. Sort of mind-blowing. But today I think that what really is the challenge and I hope that this doesn't set the bar for the next 15 years of what the, the worst thing is that we'll face. But I think this is important because this way of thinking that says there's no truth or everything is true is a very detrimental mindset. And it's tearing away at the world. It's tearing away at our families, as we'll talk about in the next hour. We're going to see how this idea of nothing's right or wrong, do it however you want, is affecting our families. And we're going to see how tonight this idea is affecting our young people and, and the, the things that they're going to be faced with and the difficulties that they're going to have to wrestle with, that they're already wrestling with. It's destroying religion because we lack authority for anything that's right or wrong. We exist in churches where when we have thoughts like this, it causes people to not mind the authority of Scripture, not mind the authority of church leadership, to have an answer of... of uh, of contradiction to every piece of truth that's brought along. And really, it's eroding our ability to think. That's what's important about this, is it's preached and proclaimed as a new way of thinking that's a better way of thinking. But what it's doing is it's destroying our ability to think critically about evidence and about facts. Because there is evidence. That evidence leads us to facts. Those facts mean that we have to answer for them. And when we say that evidence doesn't matter, that facts don't matter, we're being intellectually dishonest. We're not thinking properly. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I personally am thankful, and I know you are too, that God has revealed the truth of who he is and who we are and who his son is and how to have salvation and to live a holy life. And he has revealed that all to us, not just in a self-contained book that that uh, is in a capsule by itself, but in the world around us, it all points back to God. Everything we see points us back to God. And I hope that as we go through this week, we'll consider this, but on through the rest of our lives, that we'll always have the respect for the word of God that it deserves. Well, I hate to do this to you, but I'm done. And I'm finishing up sort of early.
I'm not used to preaching this long. So, uh, what do you think? Go straight into the next lesson? No? Okay. All right, I guess we'll take a break. I'm sorry.